Good morning. It's good to be here with you again this morning. So we worship the Lord both in song and prayer and around the Lord's table and now with the Word of God. We've been in a larger section of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 is a, is a section where the, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the false teachers that are coming to the church. Right? Often uh, we, we read this section and we, we have to remember that it's one long, one long letter, one long book in the sense that Paul is writing to help these believers not only deal with the false teachings that's coming to the church, but how they should respond and how they should live. And so he, what he's done in chapter 2 is he's come and he's, he's got a laser-like focus on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And what he's done, he's, he said, basically a warning to these believers, and an application to us as well, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ in verse 8 of Colossians 2. Okay, So that's the, the warning that he's given these believers. Well, the, the answer to that warning, the answer to the false teaching in a broad sense is twofold. Verse 9, he says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells. So Jesus Christ is fully God and He's fully man. Right? So if He's fully God and fully man, not only is He supreme, which He's talked about in Colossians chapter 1, but now He's sufficient for you. And you know He's sufficient because there's a second point in verse 10. In Him you have been made complete. Okay, Or you have everything you need in Him. You are in union with Jesus Christ. When you are saved, you are united with Christ. And you have all you need for life and guidance. So that's, that's Paul's general uh, response to any false teaching. Right? Why do you, it's like what he says to the Galatians. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why are you turning from Christ to something else? And that's basically what he, he unfolds here in chapter 2 of Colossians. And that brings us down to the section we've been, we've been dealing with the last few weeks, and that's verses 16 through 23. Now, he has, he has made this general statement about our, uh, Christ being fully God and fully man and our union with Him, and in the following verses he describes what that means, how we've been buried with Him and how we've been raised with Him and how we've had our debts canceled and we've been forgiven of our sins, how we have victory over the enemy powers in this world. He, he's laid that all out. And then he comes to verse 16, and he gets a lot more specific. Okay? And as we've talked about a few weeks past, he deal, deals with the three parts or the three dangers of the false teaching of these guys that have come into the church. There's a legalistic aspect to it. And we, we've talked about the danger of legalism. There's a mystical aspect, and we've talked about the danger of mysticism. And today we're going to be dealing with, there's an ascetic aspect to their teaching, and we're going to be dealing with asceticism. Well, within these three sections, or excuse me, in these three, three parts of their false teaching, these, these parts, these specific areas of teaching are common even today. And so that's why I've entitled this section, The Danger or Common Dangers Facing the Church. 
right? The danger of legalism, the danger of mysticism. And today we're going to be talking about the danger of asceticism. And so when we look at this, we're going to see how the false teachers were using all three of these things, but specifically asceticism or ascetic practices to bring these believers under bondage, to, to, to basically enslave them, to deceive them. Now, I don't know if many of you know the story of the Swedish worship Vasa. It's, uh, if you've ever been to Sweden, and I haven't, I'd love to see it. Um, but the Swedish ship Vasa was commissioned by King Gustav II in 1626, a long time ago. It was completed in 1628, and at the time, it was to be the most powerfully armed warship in the world. It had 64 bronze cannons, and, and it was a time where the wood carvings all over the ship were just intricate, a beautiful, beautiful ship. Well, on August 10th in 1628, she set sail, and 20 minutes into her journey, barely a mile from the port she had just left, two strong gusts of wind hit her in full sail. She keeled over to port, and she sank with the loss of 30 men. Now, an inquest was established, and they really couldn't find a reason for the ship sinking. Ultimately, one of the carpenters on the ship said, God only knows. And ultimately, unlike today, no one paid a price for the ship. They, they, they couldn't figure out why it had happened. Well, they found the ship. In, on April 8th in 1961, it was raised from the mud and the, and the cold water. And it has been restored, and you can see it in Sweden, and it gets about a million visitors every year. What was interesting about this story is archaeologists believe they finally figured out why the ship sank. They've measured the ship intricately, measured it on the side, the top, the bottom. And what they find or what they found is that the structure on the port side of the ship is, is bigger, is larger, is longer than on the, the starboard side of the ship. So no wonder it, it killed over. There was more wood, there's more structure on one side, right? That's why it was, it was lopsided. And so they said, well, why did this happen? So what they found, and this is... Really interesting, as they were looking in the ship and they were doing these measurements, they found, because it was a maiden voyage, with a lot of carpenter measuring tools, a lot of rulers where they used on the ship. What they found is they were using two different types of measurements as they constructed the ship. They, were, they found two rulers that were in the Swedish feet, which were 12 inches, and they found two rulers which were in the Amsterdam feet, which is 11 inches. And so each carpenter was using his own system of measurements. And the result was a lopsided ship that was destined to fail. Brethren, in Colossae, these false teachers were using a different standard to measure godliness, holiness, righteousness, spiritual maturity. They were using a standard that measured people's lives other than the true standard of Jesus Christ. They were teaching legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Ways that a person could know God and grow in their spiritual maturity. And today we're going to be examining this asceticism, this ascetic practices, and how the false teachers were using these to enslave and deceive, and to teaching a method of, of sanctification apart from Jesus Christ. Brethren, the only standard that you need to keep you from failing is the Scriptures. It's our rule for life and godliness. It's God's truth. But we're looking at three points today. We're going to be looking at the ascetic practices 
and how they assume Christ is insufficient. We're going to be looking at the ascetic practices and how they focus on temporary things. And we're going to be looking at the ascetic practices that, and how they have no spiritual value. So let's go ahead and look at the text. Let's, let's start in verse 16 because this is one sentence, one section in the Greek. And I don't want to, to break up the train of thought. But specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 23 today. Verse 16 of chapter 2. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These, the things excuse me, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but of no value against fleshly indulgence. So the first point we're going to talk about today is ascetic practices assume Christ is insufficient. So notice what Paul says, look, he says, if, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, he, he makes a statement here. Now, this is in the Greek. It's a first-class conditional for you, Jordan. There you go as he's studying Greek. It, Paul assumes this to be true. In other words, you could say, since, right? So what he's given, he's given the true condition of these believers, and hence our true condition, right? Paul wanted them to understand that, look, if you have died to the elementary, if you, me, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles, then why are you listening to all this other stuff, right? He's making this statement. He says, basically he's saying, you have died with Christ. Colossians 2, verse 12, says that you've been buried with him. And this, this section that describes our union with Christ, and it's a picture of baptism, how we've, we've died with Christ, and, as, and our past life is dead with him, and we've been risen to new life. So Paul says this, this is the truth. You have died with Christ. You've been buried with him. It's a picture of our regeneration and our new life in Christ. In Colossians 3.3, 3, he says, for you have died. He just says it as a statement. It's not a question. Right? Our past life is dead. Look, if, if our past life is dead, and this is Paul's point as he gets into chapter 3, is why are we living? Why do you live according to the things of this world? Right? If, if your whole last way of living, your past life, is gone, is dead, has been forgiven, then why are you living in accordance with these kind of rules and regulations, as we'll get into in just a few minutes? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, We are a new creation in Christ. Praise the Lord. We have a new heart. We have a new nature. Right? Before, before, Right? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We, we couldn't say no to sin. We were alienated from God. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, we were hostile in our minds. So you are 
a new creation in Christ. You have died with Him. And he says, look, not only if you, if you died with Christ, but you've died to the elementary principles. You think about the way you used to believe. For those of you that have been Christians a while, think about just how often you accepted the world's ideas on things. Right? Your old worldview, your old way of life was, was man-centered. It was works-focused. That's, that's the nature of all religions. All religions are, are, are man-centered and works-focused. It's what we can do to earn the deity or deities favor, blessings, or to appease a deity so they won't hurt us. Right? They're man-focused. They're works-based. Paul says, look, he says, you were saved, or excuse me, you, you've died here in the, in the English. It says, you die, you've died with Christ to the elementary principles. When the Greek, there's a preposition, apo. And it, it literally means from or, or to be removed from something. He says, you've, been, you've, been, you've, you've died with Christ or you're saved from the elementary principles. Right? You've been separated from these things. So when I say elementary principles, it goes back to what Paul was warning in Colossians chapter 2. Right? He's warning them not, not to be taken captive to the, the traditions of men in verse 8 of chapter 2 according to the elementary principles. Y'all remember what those elementary principles of the world were? We're talking about the, the basic thought process, the basic doctrines, sets of beliefs that the world would carry. Right? It's, in other words, how do people describe, that are non-believers, how do they describe man's place in this world? What are our, where, where's our origin? Right? Most people in our societies today would say that, that man evolved over millions and billions of years into the present form. And through a, a long series of, of change, you have the evolutionary chain, they would say. This is, we, have, we have proof of this, right? But they start out with the basic premise that God doesn't exist and there's no supernatural forces. And if God doesn't exist, then you have to have a natural explanation for things, right? So the presupposition that you make at the beginning determines the path you're going to follow. And they assume, right, they assume there's no supernatural. And so there has to be a naturalistic process. So when you, when you ask somebody, and we're talking to somebody in the world, these elementary principles, or, or what is man? What's his origin? What's condition? Why does man do what he does? Right? The, the nature of man's psychology would tell you that man is naturally good. And what we need to do is we need to find out what's, what's caused their behavior, either through nature or nurture. And then if we can't, we can't modify that behavior, then we're going to give you drugs to help modify that behavior. Right? That's why psychology is, is dangerous in this. Sense. It doesn't deal with the heart of man. It doesn't deal with, with his sinful nature. So what's the purpose of man? Right? So many people in this world would say the purpose of man is that we just what? We eat, we drink, we be merry, we die. Indulge, right? There's nothing. Well, we know for believers that our purpose is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What's the destiny of man? Religions, many different religions will give you different ways they think man is going to go. In the end, we know the destiny. We know our destiny. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord, right? It's our destiny. That's a hope that we have. So you think about God, the elementary principle of the world. Is there a God? How can we know Him? Well, the Bible tells us how we know Him. We know Him from creation in a general sense, but in a salvific sense, in a personal way, we know Him because He's revealed Himself 
in the Word of God. Right? What is evil? These are all elementary principles that the world seeks to answer. Where, why is there evil in this world? Where did it come from? We know where it came from. It came from sin. Why do, why do people do bad things? Because they're bad people. Right? The whole saying is, why do good people do bad things? Or why does bad things happen to good people? No, it's, why do bad people do bad things? And why do bad things happen to bad people? Because they're evil. And they're hearts. And they're wicked. Sin is both what? Indiscriminate and it's direct as well. So these are those elementary principles, right? So this is what Paul says, look, you've died. You, you died in Christ in your past life. You died to these elementary principles, right? What kind of perspective are you having? When I was a manager at Chick-fil-A, I had this lady come through one time and then she came through our drive-thru and I was, I was just inside the, the front section of the store uh, the restaurant, and, and she said, oh, I need to speak to the manager. So I walked over to the window, and she said, hey, there's, there's this huge limb. This large tree limb has fallen down because it had been really windy that day. This large tree limb has fallen, and it's sticking out in front of in the drive through and it, it's going to damage some people's cars, and I had to kind of drive around it and be careful. And I was like, oh, wow. I said, oh, sorry to hear that. And I walked out there, and um, we, have a, we have a person that stands outside in order to facilitate drive through Unless you experience Chick-fil-A drive-thru, you don't know what I'm talking about. We have a person, it's called a cash box. We take money outside to make drive-thru go faster. Well, they're not allowed to move outside that box because they're, they're kind of got cash there in front of them. So I walked to one of our workers and I said, hey, you know, this lady complained. Do you know what she's talking about? And they, they literally, he was one of my, uh, my junior leaders, and he kind of chuckled and he said, that's it over there. And I went, what do you mean? There was this, this little stick about yay long, two feet, I don't know, maybe not even a meter, but about as big as round, less, less uh, thickness of an American dime, if you've ever seen an American dime, really thin, and it was just kind of sticking out, just kind of in drive. I mean, if a car ran over, it would have broken it, right? So, so I just kind of looked around and picked it up and threw it around, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's all about perspective, right? For her perspective, like she didn't want to scratch her brand new Mercedes, I guess, but from her perspective, this huge limb had fallen in the way. Look, there, there is... There's truth, right? There, there's what God's Word says, and there's what the world says. Now, what the world says has many variations, but they're all opposed to God. They're all based on what they think will describe and satisfy these basic elementary principles. There is truth. There is absolute truth. And it's not based on experience. It's not based on perspective, but rather the Scriptures. Regardless of what people say and how they say it, Know that Jesus Christ is sufficient for your sanctification, sufficient for your salvation, and sufficient for your life. These false teachers were promoting these ascetic practices, which we'll get to in a minute. And they felt they need to bridge the gap between God and man. They were presumptuous in the sense that they said that, that Jesus Christ wasn't enough. That you need angels. And you need to have these, these ascetic practices to, to introduce these mystical visions. Right? And if you didn't hold to these visions, then you were less Christian. See, they combined all these three together. Ascetic practices, mysticism, and legalism. Because whenever you find legalism and ascetic practices, they're always kind of hand in hand. Right? I'm going to say that in order to become more spiritual, you have to do certain things or don't do certain things. And if you don't do those, or you do do them, right? you don't listen to me basically, then you're less righteous. Because you're, you're not living by the standard that I've set out. Right? I have a different standard. False teachers have a different standard. You see, the practice of ascetic, ascetic practices basically is, is 
is things that you do, harsh treatment of the body, or things that you avoid in order to gain favor from God. Right? You're, you're trying to, to induce God to give you a blessing, give you grace, give you recognition by what you do physically. Right? So these ascetic practices assume Christ is sufficient. But look at else what they say. Paul says here, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? And he says, look, basically he says, as if you're living in the world, why do you obey these false teachers as if you were unbelievers? Right? He says, you're giving the appearance as you're, if you're just like anybody else in the world. The appearance is that, that you've not been born again. Because you remember, unbelievers are enslaved to their sin. They only choose sin. John 3, 19 says that man, men love the darkness and they hate the light. Right? Colossians 1, 21 says that, that, that unbelievers are alienated from God. They're hostile in their minds. For, I love what 1 Peter, 4, or 1 Peter says. Or Peter says in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, let me put it that way. Verse 4, he says, they are surprised you don't run with them into the flood of dissipation, right? Imagine a marathon of life, right? All running, doing whatever you want to do. And unbelievers are surprised that you don't join in that race with them, that you step out as the flood of dissipation goes by, right? It says in, actually in 1 Peter, and they malign you because of it. See, unbelievers, why are you living that way? That's what Paul's saying. Like, why, unbelievers are enslaved to idolatrous worship. And this is the thing, Romans 1 says in Romans 1, 21, that, that unbelievers, they, they, they reject God's truth, right? They reject God, uh, His invisible attributes in creation, in verse 20, right? And they, even though they, those things are being understood, and God can be understood on a base level, they are without excuse. It says in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, that even though they knew God, they did not honor Him, as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they rejected God and guess what they did? They had, to, they had to substitute the truth for error. Because there's only two, two ways you can go. Right? You're either sufficient in Christ or there's something else. Right? So they, they speculate. And, what is the, and you'll see, where does their speculation lead them? Their speculation leads them to what? Verse 22, they profess to be wise, they become fools. What do they do? They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, right? And birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So their answer, when they rejected God and, come up with their, and came up with their own religion and religious, is to what? Idolatry. That's man's natural response. You reject the truth, there's, there's only one other way to go, and that's something other than God. And that's something of your own creation. Right? So Paul says here, look, why as if you were living, why are you living like these unbelievers? Right? Unbelievers would use these ascetic practices. You talk to Benji sometime and others that are from India and even some of these the Hindu practices of asceticism and these, these Buddhist monks and the, the, the harsh treatment of the body. Right? The denying themselves basic Necessities of life, starving themselves, right? They're trying to trying to gain enlightenment, achieve spiritual um, 
spiritual development, if you can say, to, to, uh, to gain special knowledge. You see, all this assumes that Christ isn't sufficient. So these false teachers were coming in and saying, like, Jesus isn't sufficient. And Paul's saying, look, if you died with Christ, and you died to all these elementary thinking, these elementary principles, why are you living as if you're in the world? Right? You're not in the world. Right? We should be defined as believers by our focus on what's eternal and not temporal. Right? Your, your life should be defined by a defense of the truth. A love of God, a love of His Word, a love of, for His people. A hatred of your sin. In the States, you see a lot of, a lot of cars. This was big. I think about 10 years ago. I still see cars with this. And I have these stickers on the back of their car. And it'll say, NTW. Right? I haven't seen the, any of these stickers in Australia. But it was is a kind of a movement for a little while in the Christian community. It was, not of this world. And people put the stickers on their car, and they're just kind of emphasizing that, you know, this world isn't my home. Um, I always thought it was amusing that people would stick, them, stick the stickers on their cars. You know, you'd have BMWs and Mercedes. It's not of this world. You know, those things, those things are fine. I just, it's one of those things where, you know, sticker doesn't share the gospel, right? But it is true in the sense that we're not of this world. Our, our home isn't this world. Peter says that we're, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says we reside as aliens, right? And in some countries, we're illegal aliens, right? China, our brethren face intense persecution for their faith. So he says, look, understand that these ascetic practices, they assume that Christ is insufficient. They're man-made, man-made rules, Right? Why are you acting as if you're unbelievers? And he says, look, why do you submit yourself to these decrees? So they're, they're, and the thing about submission is they're willingly submitting. Right? They're, submission basically means willingly placing yourself under another's authority. Peter says that we are to willingly submit to government. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. Ephesians 5, 24 says the church submits to Jesus Christ as his head, his Lord. 1 Peter 5 5 says the congregation is submit to their elders. Right? Ephesians 5 22, wives submit to their husbands. Ephesians 6 1, children submit to their parents. Ephesians 6 5, a slave submit to your masters. Or, or if you want to even bring it into modern day language, workers submit to your boss. And we, the, the, Paul's saying, look, and he's emphasizing, he says, you submit yourself. These false teachers are coming into the church and they're teaching about these specific practices we're going to get to in a minute. And he's saying, you, you've got to do these things. These believers are saying, okay, let's go. It's not like somebody's grabbing their arm and they're jerking and pulling them and saying, you've got to do this. Pull, you know, pulling a gun out of their, their pocket and saying, hey, if you don't do this, you're going to die. They're willingly following. And this is why Paul, Paul's incredulous. He says, why? If you're dead to these elementary principles, and you're, why are you living like you're an unbeliever? Why are you obeying these, these decrees, these man-made religious rules for your life? Right? They, they never achieve salvation. Man-made rules, man-made religions, they always appear wise. They always are, appear intellectual, but they don't achieve salvation. Right? What does man-made rules actually get us? They get us and get you idolatry. Romans 1.21. And they never achieve sanctification. 
Right? Galatians, Paul talks about this in Galatians. Galatians 5 it tells these believers in Galatians, don't be a slave to religious rules. Right? You've saved, you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to submit to all the rules and regulations of the law. Because that's what the, the false teachers, the Judaizers were teaching in Galatians. They said, now that you're saved, all us Gentiles, we have to live by the Jewish regulations. We have freedom in Christ. If it's not expressly forbidden by God in Scripture, then you have freedom. Right? You don't have license to, to, to just ignore God's Word. You don't have license to just go crazy. There are groveting principles. But if you want to eat a pork sandwich, you're okay. Right? If you want to go to the beach, if you want to not drink, right? if you want to not eat any sugar products, you want to be a vegan, it's fine. Do those things. Right? You have freedom to make those choices in Christ. Those are personal choices. So Paul says, look, why are you submitting? Right? You guys know what a, a zonky? A zonky is. You ever heard of a zonky? Well, I read an article not too long ago, and there was this uh, zonky that was born in Italy. He's the only one in Italy. His name is Ippo. And he is the product of a male zebra and a female donkey. Apparently, there was a fence separating the two, and the male, like a uh, petulant Romeo, jumped the fence and had an illicit affair with a female donkey, and a zonky is born. Now, I've seen a picture. It looks like a donkey has light brown hair with zebra stripes. Very interesting. Google it. All right? Not now. Later. All right? Brothers and sisters, look, when you, when you follow these false teachers, right, you become a zonkey. You become something you were never meant to be. Right? You take on those stripes, but yet they, they gain you nothing. So not only do the ascetic practices assume Christ is insufficient in verse 20, but the ascetic practices, number two, also focus on temporary things. Look down in verse 21. Paul says, look, why do you submit to these decrees? And he gives examples. He says, do not touch, or excuse me, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Which refer, verse 22, to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teaching of men. Why? Why are you submitting to these things? Paul's incredulous. And he's saying, do not handle. The word do not handle means to take hold of voluntarily, a conscious effort to touch, to be a participant in. Remember when I was in youth growing up in the church, uh, we would always go on these ski trips. I mean, we'd have different parents, different moms that would volunteer to be uh, chaperones on the trip. And I remember um, as kind of our tradition is we would, you know, after skiing, we'd all get back in and we'd have by the fire. And we'd all play card games, right? We had a bunch of different card games. We love like rummy and spades. Um, but I remember one of the moms walked in and she was just appalled. She's like, I can't, I can't believe you guys are playing with cards. I mean, you might as well be dancing. Just kidding. She couldn't believe it. She was like, you know, we, it was like we were gambling. We were, we're playing non-gambling card games. But in her mind, it was like, if, you, if you're handling cards, then one thing's definitely going to lead to another. It's like the joke, there's, there's an old joke, and I've probably told you this before, in Southern Baptist churches where I grew up, some of them are a little fundamentalist. The old joke is, uh, you know, why is adultery so bad? And it's because it might lead to dancing, right? 
So, you know, you, you have these things where, of course, it's going to lead to something else, right? So, so Paul says, look, they're telling these false teachers, telling you, don't handle, don't be a participant in. And then he said, don't taste. I mean, literally, the word in Greek for taste means taste, right? Sorry. Just throw, throw a little Greek out there for Jordan. All right. So, so don't taste, don't partake in the mouth. He's basically saying they're, 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 they're offering dietary restrictions. Don't eat this, don't eat that, don't drink this, don't drink that. You guys heard of the Daniel fast by chance? It was big in the states for a while. I Peter's Peter's nodding his head over here. At least one person, maybe. So the Daniel fast, you know, it's it's the fast where you're supposed to eat and drink like Daniel did in the book of Daniel, right? When he was standing in the Babylonian uh, before the Babylonian officers, and he's like, "Well, we can't eat your Babylonian food. I want to only do this." And the very specific things he laid out. Well, you're to you're to follow that fast. Well, a particular individual, his name is. Uh, if I can say it right, Jenison, there, Franklin. He's the pastor of Free Chapel Church in Georgia in USA. And he, he started promoting this idea that, you know, we need to be like Daniel. We need to follow this Daniel fast. And he said, look, if you follow this Daniel fast and you refrain from certain foods and certain drinks, you will receive a blessing from God. And he's encouraged his whole church to do it. And they get together and they, they, have, they all have this big, huge Daniel fast. And they say it's a public expression in order to get a public reward. And he's part of that name it and claim it, right? I'm going to sow in a seed and I'm going to receive a great benefit from God, right? And the purpose of this fast is to receive blessings. And if you look on their website, it says that this fast has produced healed relationships, spiritual growth, physical healings, financial breakthroughs, and other blessings, end quote. Right? This, is an, this is an example of an ascetic teaching. Right? You do this practice, right? you fast the way they say you should fast, and God gives you something. Right? It's not about, all right, I'm going to now real fast, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 6, as he's talking to the Pharisees and he's talking to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. You, a real fast is to be done in private. Right? A fasting is a time where, all right, I've got some decision to make. Or I've got some, I'm under intense pressure. And I want to, I want to spend time with the Lord. I want to spend time in prayer. I'm seeking an answer from God. I want to grow in my relationship. Individually, you do this quietly without telling anyone. And it's between you and the Lord, right? It's not a public practice in which the church gets together and says, we're going to fast and we're going we're gonna to try to get something from God. That's, that's asceticism, right? Asceticism, even if it's in its early forms, were, were guys that would, they would strip up all their clothing to the bare, bare bottom, bare necessities, and they would sit on a, a giant pole. And they would say, well, I'm hurting my body. And they would sit on a giant pole for, for a month, right? Or they refused to eat anything they, but, but just honey and water. They would take whips and they would whip their bodies, hurt themselves. Oh, because they would say, oh, the flesh is wicked. And, and you know what? This pleases God when I hurt myself. So these ascetic practices are saying, look, don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch. Don't even make a, and, and this is Paul, and he's kind of a little bit of sarcasm here because he's, he's accelerating this. He's like, don't handle, don't taste, don't even touch it like a little kid. You, know, you can't trust kids around ovens and stoves. Don't touch that. Don't touch, touch, touch. Like these false teachers are saying, like, don't even make passing 
contact. So Paul, in one sense, he's kind of making fun of these false, belief, these false teachers, right? He's got this descending order, and, and he's, he's basically drawing attention to these ascetic practices. Like they would, they would, these ascetic practices were designed so you could show your devotion to God by what you would do. They would go without talking and sleeping and food, right? They would abstain from all these things so that they could gain God's favor. And Paul continues, he says, look, not only like, are they saying, do not handle, do not taste, but he says, and he kind of adds a little side note, and he says, look, these things are all destined to perish with use. The word literally, the, the way it's arranged in the Greek, the phrase is, they're, they're destined to be consumed. You know, when, when you eat something, right, you eat a, a nice pork sandwich, right, it doesn't come out the way it goes in, right? Let me good graphic, right? It's consumed. It no longer is a pork sandwich. That's basically what Paul's saying. He, he's not being, not being crass. He's just pointing out a simple fact. You drink something and it's gone, right? And you can't leave something for so long or what will happen? It will spoil, right? Food is designed to be eaten. Imagine that, right? Drink is designed to be drunk, right? That's Paul's point. It's, all going to, it's not going to exist. They're all consumables. And all these people, are, the, the, the ascetic practices the false teachers are promoting, are, are, they're, they're emphasizing things that are, that are temporary, right? Jesus says in, in Mark 7, he talks about what you eat and what you drink don't defile you. Don't make you unclean. Right? It's, your, it's your heart. It's the, the wicked heart that makes you unclean. And when you're a believer, you're given a new nature. Right? We still struggle with our flesh. We still have the flesh on us. We struggle with those desires. But we can buffet our body. We can make it our slave, as Paul says in Romans. We, we, can, we can tell our body no. We can say no to sin. You see, the false teachers were focusing in on what? Temporal things. They were saying that eternal things like your spiritual growth, your, your sanctification, even your salvation was dependent upon you following their, what? Religious rules. Your, their focus on do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. You know, years ago when I was in uni, one of my friends called me up and he said, uh, he said hey, you know, I've got this new, this, this beer you need to try. I went, okay, why are you calling me? He said, oh, it's great. You should try it. It's made by Belgian monks. I said, oh, Belgian monks, huh? Seriously? I didn't believe it. It was called, uh, called Kame. I'm not advertising for it. Don't get me wrong. I'm just, if you want to Google it. But it was made by Belgian monks. And I remember thinking at the time, and it still was kind of, kind of uh, thought-provoking, is these monks were ascetic, right? They were denying themselves basic luxuries, basic, even basic clothes now wore robes right but yet they were they were making beer for others to drink i always thought it was kind of a you know oxymoron or irony there right you know monasticism orders of of monks orders for nuns those kind of things uh, those are those are people that that say i'm going to do these ascetic practices deny the body in multiple ways because I want to please God, right? That's not what God wants for you. When I was younger, I always thought, wow, those monks, God must really be happy with that. You know, Martin Luther was a monk. And then he got saved and he said, forget that. 
right? Because God puts us in the world for what? A specific reason. We glorify Him by our behavior. We glorify Him by sharing the gospel with people that we meet on a daily basis, right? We demonstrate what? The truth of the gospel in our lives by how we act, that the gospel actually makes changes in people, right? We're not living hypocritically, but we also do it verbally as we share the gospel. We're in this world where the salt and light if you, if you take yourself out of the world, are you salt and light? No. And does it doesn't honor the Lord. It doesn't please Him to be a nun or a, or a monk, right? Daniel fast. All these things, they seek to gain God's favor. All of these food things, all these food items, they can do nothing for your spiritual state. Right? We have to be careful that we don't go hog wild, to use that term from the south where I'm from. We don't want to go hog wild and, and live in license. There are things that are forbidden by Scripture. Right? Moderation. Right? Abstaining or indulging in, in pork. Right? Doesn't make you more spiritual, less spiritual. Right? Being a vegan doesn't make you more spiritual, less spiritual. doesn't honor the Lord anymore. By the way, did you see recently, they, they've come out and said that red meat is not bad for you. See, all of us all along, we knew it was good. So they've, they've proven it's, it's not bad for you. Look, they, they don't change the way your, your standing is before God, right? And Paul continues and he says, look, he says, they're all destined to perish. But he says, why are you doing these things? Why are you doing in accordance to the commandments of men, to the decrees of men? Right? The, what he's talking about is commandments. These things have their origin in the mind of man. They're, n- they're not from God. Right? They're, they're flesh-centered. They're not God-centered. They're, they're man-made religious activity and commands. And remember, those, those man-made commands are always idolatrous and they're always self-focused and, and works-focused. I love what, what Jesus actually quotes Isaiah as well in, in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Isaiah 29, it says, Then the Lord said, Because this people, they draw near to me with their words, and they honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Right? Parents, you want to teach, you want to raise Pharisees? Right? You want to raise Pharisees? Then teach your kids to obey Right? To obey some moral rules without teaching them grace, without teaching them the gospel. Right? If you teach them a set of rules, regulations that they should or should not follow without teaching them the why you are raising Pharisees. Right? It's a danger for each one of us. Right? Teach my kids to obey the law, and the law is to point out what? It's to point out God's holiness, His righteousness, and their lack thereof. That they are sinners and they what? They need the gospel. Right? So Paul's saying, why are you following these decrees of men? These ascetic practices, what do they do really? They pollute the gospel. Right? The gospel says you, you have freedom in Christ and these, uh, these false teachers are coming in and saying, you have to do this and you don't do that. And if you don't do those things, you're less of a Christian. Or you're, you're not going to grow as a Christian if you don't practice this Daniel fast. Or, or if you decide you want to eat pork. And I go back to that continually because there were Jewish Christians in this, in this church. See, they focus in on what is temporary, right? 
Where Jesus says, look, walk, Jesus walk by the Spirit. And you won't indulge in the flesh. Right? We, we focus on Jesus' commandments in His Word. And we do those things, we, we do it, we obey out of love. Right? So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't practice any spiritual disciplines. But we read God's Word to what? To know Him better. And to know His will for our lives. And what do we do it? Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. We, we respond to God out of love. And we want to know Him better. He's revealed Himself in His scriptures. And, he, and we want to know His will for our lives. Right? We want to know those elementary principles. But we want to know them. Well, what are the principles that God has laid forth? We, we do that by just reading and studying the Word of God. We meditate on the Word of God. The Holy Spirit draws things to our mind. Convicts us of sin. We repent. and We grow. I love what Solomon says. Solomon, Ecclesiastes is Solomon's repentance. I believe it's the end of his life. He's looked over his life and he's realized he sinned. He's realized that nothing, nothing satisfies vanity of vanity. But he says in, in Ecclesiastes 9, and he says, actually let's look at verse 7. Go then eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil which you have labored under the sun. He says, basically, if you have God as your focus... Right? Chapter 9 through the end of the book, through chapter 12, the, the, the theme of this section is fear God, obey Him, and enjoy life. If you have God as your focus, then enjoy life. Enjoy the things that He's given you without guilt. Praise the Lord. If He's given you a, a, a spouse, He's given you family, He's given you a church family, a house to live in, right? A car to drive, opportunity to go to the beach. What a blessing. We, we have great weather here in Adelaide. So far, I haven't hit summer yet. Right? Enjoy the life God has given you. Don't be enslaved to somebody who comes along and says, don't do this if you want to love God better. You won't, sorry, don't do this if you want God to love you better. So that was the second point. The third point, verse 23, ascetic practices have no spiritual value. Paul says in verse 23, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Right? So he said they have the appearance of wisdom. I love that word, appearance here. It's anything repeated in speech. Right? It's an unmerited reputation of excellence. Something repeated so many times that it's accepted as true. Right? You think about it in our society. We, we just accept the fact that, that nuns and monks, they're, I mean, in general, people would say, oh, they're more spiritual. Right? They're dedicating themselves to the Lord. I would, that's, not a, that's asceticism. That's not a spiritual thing. Right? That's not what God's designed His people to be about or to be salt and light. Right? The things are just accepted. I just Googled a few things. I thought you would find this interesting. <clears throat> Common things that we accept, generally people accept, but are not true. One thing people accept is that there's a dark side of the moon. We're not talking about the Pink Floyd song. Dark side of the moon. Where people say, oh, there's a dark side. Well, the moon spins on an axis, right? Just like the earth. There's no dark side. There's a, there's a side that is dark, but there's not one side that is always dark, right? That was a common misconception, right? 
He's got into our, into our lexicon, and we don't even really think about it. Oh, yeah, there's a dark side of the moon. Well, there is one side that's dark, but it's, the moon turns. Or how about this one? You use only 10% of your brain, right? Right? Well, I could take 10, does that mean I could take 10% out, and, and then I would die? Right? Which 10%? No, you use 100% of your brain. Right? Your brain, right, it orchestrates your body. Right? You don't just use 10%, right? We use all of our brains. How about this one? This is one that I heard a lot, and as someone who worked for a restaurant, people, growing up, people, my mom and my grandmother say, oh, you need to wash your chicken before you, before, you, uh, before you fry it or before you cook it, right? You don't have to wash your chicken. It's raw, right? You, you're going to cook it and kill all the bacteria. In fact, washing it actually is, is worse because what you're doing, you spread the, through salmonella, you're spreading the salmonella germs all over your sink, right? Misconceptions, right? Or how about carrots improve your vision? My mom used to tell me, eat your carrots. You'll be able to see better. We even had Bugs Bunny eating the, eating, the, uh, eating the carrots, right? You know, you realize that eating your carrots, that was a British propaganda during World War II, right? The British had developed radar, and so they could see the German planes at night. The Germans didn't have radar. And, and in order for them to kind of hide the fact that they were able to see these German planes using radar, they, the British, using propaganda, were putting out how they've been feeding their soldiers lots of carrots so they have great eyesight, even at night. And it, it just kind of entered into our lexicon, entered into our thoughts. See, these are all things that we accept, right? And you Google sometimes, there's a huge list of these things. They're very interesting, right? Not now, later, right? But they have the appearance of wisdom, Right? These are just common myths. And that's what Paul says, look, the, the matters that these ascetic practices these false teachers are, are, are promoting, they, they have the appearance of wisdom. In fact, they may even be commonly held beliefs that the people don't even challenge. But God says in his word, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, Paul argues to the Corinthians, he says, look, man's wisdom is foolishness to God. And God's wisdom is foolish as the man, right? Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? Just because something appears like wisdom or appears to make sense doesn't mean it is. We, we, my Greek professor, Dr. Fornell, bless his heart, he, he would always tell us to, to he wanted us to... to Question everything. That was his rule. All right? He would, in a, this is in Greek class, he would play slides or show slides of the X-Files and, and the thing of the X-Files is question everything. And that's what he wanted us to do. He wanted us to, to, to go to the Greek, put aside all our presuppositions. What does the Word of God teach? And we need to examine all our traditions, all the things that we've grown up with believing. We need to say, does it match up with Scripture? Is it just tradition? You see, these rules and regulations, sound, they sound enticing. I mean, think about it. If, if you knew for a fact, quote-unquote, that, hey, if I do these things, God's going to love me more, wouldn't you want to do that? And that's, that's how the false teachers, that's how they, they, they come at you. Hey, don't you want to love God more? Don't, excuse me, don't you want God to love you more? Don't you want Him to bless you more? The thing about that question is the answer to that question is found in Romans 8. Right, Romans 8. Paul says in Romans, he said, he, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, 
but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Right? Peter says in First Peter, you have Second Peter, you have everything you need for life and godliness in Christ. And then he continues here in Romans 8, he says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died. Right? He intercedes for us at the right hand. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? It's rhetorical. No one. And then he says, he actually says, look, there's physical things. Well, tribulation or darkness or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, sword. None of these physical things in this world can separate us from the love of God. Right? In verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life there are angels, principalities, there are things present, there are things to come, there are height, there are depth, there are any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God loves you, brethren. He's not going to love you anymore, any less. He loves you to the fullest extent possible already. Okay? So just because something appears like wisdom doesn't mean that it is. And he says, look, he said, it's in self-made religion, right? And literally, this means a worship that a person devises and prescribes for himself. Remember a man is futile in their speculations? The first thing that they worship when they, when they try to think about this earth apart from God is what do they do? They worship the creation, right? They worship themselves as well as part of that creation, any religious activity that is not biblically based is self-made and man-made religion. In fact, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that, Who knows the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? He says that we have the mind of Christ. We have, we have the mind of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, teaching us what it means to what? To know God and to please Him, to do His will. And then he goes through and he says, look, these false teachers, they, they, their, their methods are threefold. He says they have, self, sorry, they have uh, <clears throat> self-made religion, right? They have self-abasement, which is these self-imposed ascetic practices trying to, trying to gain God's favor. They have this false humility. They basically, it's a camouflage that destroys the grace of God. So they have this self-abasement. And then they have the severe treatment of the body, right? They... they they torture the flesh. They deny the flesh. They all do it in a, with, a, with a vain attempt to appear more holy. And then the last thing he says, he says, look, there's no value against fleshly indulgence. Is it worthwhile? Is it beneficial? Is it useful? No. Right? Just because you, you, you use ascetic practices doesn't mean you can, you can deny the flesh better. Right? Religious practices do nothing to change you on the inside. I was watching a movie one time, and, it's, and in this movie, they, this couple shows up, at, and they were talking to this particular guy. I don't want to go into great detail, but they basically say, oh, we, we've come to this island to help our, to help our marriage. You know, we want to have more, more love in our, in our marriage. And the guy looks at him and said, said, honey, it's an island. If you didn't bring it with you, you aren't going to find it here. Right? Because he understood that the, the, the circumstances don't change what's inside. Are these ascetic practices worthwhile? No. They don't do anything to help you deny the flesh. Right? 
Only the Holy Spirit can do that. You have everything you need. You're in union with Christ. The danger with this asceticism is it's self-willed and it's religious activity that it encourages and promotes self-sufficiency in one's spiritual growth. It becomes all about what you do and how God should give you what you deserve. Right? You're doing all these things for God. God, why aren't you blessing me? Right? I'm doing this Daniel fast, God. Why aren't you giving me more money? I'm doing this Daniel fast. Why aren't you right, killing me? Why aren't you restoring my marriage? I'm doing these things for you, Lord. I'm, I'm not eating sugar. Right? I'm not eating pork. I'm sitting on a tall pole. Right? I'm living in the outback. Like John the Baptist. Why don't you bless me, Lord? You know, we moved six months ago. <clears throat> Those of you know this. Most of you know about it. But in the U.S., we, we use a, a different measuring system, right? We use the imperial system. Whereas in Australia, we use the, uh, the metric system here. And it's interesting when you, when you try to bake a cake and your recipe's in an imperial and you try to do the conversions, sometimes it doesn't come out right, right? Or in your mind when you're thinking, all right, I need to go down 10 kilometers and take a left. How far is 10 kilometers? I don't know. Oh, it's six miles. Oh, yeah, I know how far that is, right? I'm going to go for a walk and somebody says, well, you know, it's about a 15K walk. I have no idea how far that is. Let me look at how many miles. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a lot of miles. Maybe I won't do that today, right? Because your, your mind is set on one standard, right? You can't mix the two. Right? You can't say it's half a mile plus three kilometers down the road. Somebody's going to be like, what is, he, what is he he's talking about? Brethren, don't mix the standards. Right? We have one standard, and that's the Word of God. Right? Christ is sufficient. His Word is sufficient. You don't need to add these things to your life. If a false teacher, somebody comes into to, to your life and says, you, know, you need to do these things, you need to abstain from these things in order for God to love you, bless you, to, to make you more spiritually mature, don't listen to them. That's what Paul's telling these Colossians. Why are you submitting yourself to these things? These things look like wisdom, but they're no value at all. Brethren, we've looked at three points today. The ascetic practices, they assume Christ is insufficient. The ascetic practices focus on temporal things. And ascetic practices have no spiritual value. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ is sufficient, that your word is truth. Your word is sufficient. Father, we, we thank you. We, we praise you that we have liberty in Christ, that we aren't slaves to man-made rules and regulations, that, that we follow what your word says, and the word is our rule, our standard for life. Help us to be sensitive to, to sin in our hearts, to be careful not to give in to license, but to govern our lives according to, to what your word says. To use your word, to have your word, the truth as our only standard. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can, we can know you better. We thank you that we can understand and follow your will. Father, help us as we go through the week and power us to, to glorify you with our thoughts, glorify you with our, our, our speech, and, and that we would live out the truth of the gospel, that others will see us and see a people that is truly sought and truly liked in a decaying and dark world. Father, we thank you once again for all that you are and all that you've done through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray.
Amen.